Hi everyone, and welcome to the final of our four sessions on the Bible. So the first three sessions I spent talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, and tonight I'm going to talk about the Christian Scriptures. Again, there's so much here that certainly <laughs> it doesn't do it justice in any way to do it in these short pieces that I'm doing, but I really wanted to get across some of my own thoughts and my own opinions and insights uh, about the Bible, because I do love it. I love the Bible as a, as a book, as a work of literature, and I think it, it's, it's, it's a wonderful uh, tome that everyone should be familiar with. <coughs> so tonight I'm going to talk about the Christian scriptures, <coughs> excuse me, and I'm not going to get into too much of the details. I'm not going to talk a lot about the epistles, uh, the, the, you know, the writings of Paul, or you know, going into like the book of Revelations. Uh, I'm really going to just focus on <coughs> the main themes. And I'm going to talk primarily about Christ and you know, Acts and the rest of the, the books. Well, you know, is that which are the, it's the journey of the, the body of Christ or the, the ecclesia or the church uh, in the early parts of <coughs> the first century, the common era. I'm really just going to talk about Christ. So when I'm, when I'm talking about Christ, one of the things that I, you know, found interesting as a theologian, as a teacher, as a scholar, is that man, oh man, boy, oh boy, <laughs> are there parallels between the stories of Shakyamuni Buddha and Jesus Christ. And even those words, uh, the, the names have similarities to them. You know, uh, Christ is describing who Jesus is. Uh, Buddha is describing who Shakyamuni is. You're gonna, if you ever read parallels, if you look at, uh, there's a great modern book by Marcus Borg. Uh, there's an older book called um, The Buddhist Bible that kind of, kind of brings all these parallels together. There are a ton of them. So much so that some scholars have suggested that a lot of the stories of Christ, uh, you know, like the stories that you know, we're all very familiar with uh, everything from virgin birth to um, the parables, that maybe, in fact, they may have, uh, the Buddhist tradition may have influenced these stories. There are a lot of scholars who believe that, um, certainly like um, Elaine Pigel, who she believes that the, at least the Gnostic branch of Christianity was heavily influenced by the Gospel, the Gospel of Thomas by Buddhists. So I'm not going to get into all that. And you know, some people also popularize an idea, which I don't think there's a lot of historical merit for, but the idea that Jesus went to India and you know he studied you know with the monks there and then he came back. The fact of the matter is, is if you look at the history of the of that part of the world. Uh, it was, it was a crossroads, and so <coughs> Jesus wouldn't have had to go to India <laughs> to hear about Buddhists. Uh, he, the, the India came to him, and in fact, at the time of Christ and the time of Paul, uh, Buddhism was very well established in these areas. So the idea that these stories 
would have had some cross-pollination is perfectly reasonable. But I'm not interested in that. Because for me, I think the thing about each of these traditions, regardless of what their origins are, is what can you yield from reading the story itself? And so I'm going to touch on three particular areas that I think in the story of the Christ that I, I think are really um, very helpful and useful to us. And the first is the teaching of Christ about the kingdom of heaven. Now what's interesting about that is that the, the word Christ actually is, is you know, in the, in the Hebrew, it was Messiah. It was the idea that Jesus was the one who was foretold by Isaiah and others, another prophet I didn't get to talk about. Um, and, you know, he represents the fulfillment of this. Paul talks about him as the fulfillment of Melchizedek. And, you know, you just get this sense uh, in all of this that there's a lot of expectation that Christ is going to, you know, free the Jews from the Roman um, kind of domestication they're under. And certainly if you read the stories of the Gospels, even the canonical Gospels, you know, you get the idea that the Zealots and, and some of the groups there really were looking for a military Messiah. But Jesus doesn't really represent any of that. And so the revolution that he's, he seems to represent or call for is a spiritual revolution. And that's very dismaying to some of the people who were interpreting him more as a material, military sort of justice warrior. And he wasn't that. Uh, and his teaching centered around this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And there are famous passages and the canonical gospels where, you know, uh, the apostles or his followers, the disciples, or, you know, somebody he was preaching to would say, you know, well, you know, what is the, where is the kingdom of heaven? And, you know, he would essentially say the kingdom of heaven, he would say two important things that I think are really interesting. And one is he said that the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth and yet you do not see it. And the other is, is that the kingdom of heaven is within you. And so I think that both of those statements uh, are important. And the first one is, is that it's spread upon the earth, but you don't see it. Now the parallel for me, coming from the Buddhist perspective, is that in, in the Buddhist teachings, it's the, 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 the idea or the concept that we're sort of taught and, and we sort of experience in our own practice is that this world of suffering, which sometimes is called samsara in Sanskrit, is only the will, the will of suffering or the world of suffering, uh, dukkha, because we're not enlightened, because we don't have, we haven't opened our eyes. We don't see things as they truly are. And so an enlightened being sees the very thing that is samsara to someone who is suffering, they see it as nirvana. And so this is a deep teaching because what it's asking us to do is to look, it's asking us to do two things. On the one hand, it's asking us to look beyond what we see with our eyes. And in the other hand, it's asking us to go to, 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 to not limit 
what we see with our eyes. So it's kind of asking us to do both things. And eyes, not just in the literal sense, but in the metaphorical sense. And so for me, this teaching is really about realizing that it's not my perceptions around me or the world around me that really uh, dictates how I am as a person. It's what's within. It's the eye that is within that looks without. And something I've said uh, in my book, The Three Principles of Oneness and other places, you know, the, the very same eyes that see the world as nothing but a realm of suffering, a veil of tears, when we see it that way, it's because we've seen it through the eyes of separation, where we are separate from everything. However, when we have the eyes of awakening and we see things as I believe we truly can experience them, that very same sight doesn't see uh, suffering. That very same sight sees compassion. That very same world of suffering now becomes a world of compassion. You know, and often people will ask me, what, what, what's the answer to some terrible conundrum, some terrible problem that humans face? And my answer is always compassion. You know, from my perspective, it's not so important to know why, but to know what. And so that's... That's the first way that, you know, you see the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the very same world that is full of suffering. And the kingdom of heaven, we see through the eyes of the kingdom of heaven, we see it as, you know, the giver of compassion. That's how compassion is born out of the suffering. When we look through the eyes of separation, uh, when we don't see the kingdom of heaven, you know, we see things, we see change as a great enemy because change is always either what we're trying to do to get some idea of a perfect self or change is going to take away everything that we have. And so when you see it through the eyes of separation again, uh, you know, it's, it creates a lot of suffering. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven shows us that change is how the universe brings new things into being. And I'm going to bring this back home with the final thing I say about the Christ story. But change is how the universe brings new things into being, you know. And change, except a seed fall to the earth, you know. And so th the, the kingdom of heaven is seeing with these particular eyes. And then finally the kingdom of heaven, when we see, we, we see the kingdom of heaven, we see with the eyes of the kingdom of heaven, you know, and we look at this small little self or this small little ego identity, or I love the way the Zen folk call it, you know, this, this flesh bag of skin and bones. If that's our identity, if that's all that we see, you know, well, I think that's, uh, you know, another passage that comes from the Bible, you know, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, you know. Um, from, from dust we have come and from dust we return, you know. All we are is dust in the wind, like the great Kansas song. <laughs> uh, you know, if that's our, uh, that's, that's the only identity we have, then of course, you know, 
It's just a realm of suffering. It's not the realm of God. It's not the realm of heaven. It's the realm of hell. But with the eyes of enlightenment, with the eyes that can see, the kingdom of heaven is realizing that your true identity is not this small, transitory, limited self, but it is is the very cosmos itself, it's the very oneness itself. I think that whenever Christ is talked about, I think it's in Philippians, when Christ is talked about as, you know, uh, when Paul says things like, it is not I that live, but Christ that lives within me. You know, it's, it's saying this, it's saying that our true self is our real ground of a being in existence. And so that's why I think it's very valid to talk about, when Buddhists talk about it, to say that, you know, our true consciousness, our true reality is that we are Buddha. And I think it would be just as valid for a Christian to say that my true reality is Christ, that my true being is Christ. And that's what I believe the kingdom of heaven represents. It represents two things. I think it represents a reality that takes a more awakened and enlightened view And it also, at the same time, is the practice of us seeing and seeking the kingdom of heaven that is spread upon the earth so that we have the eyes to see it. Now, the, the second thing I want to talk about in terms of Christ, and this is, like, is very important, is the cross. You can't hardly talk about Christ without talking about the crucifixion. You know, I think humans evolved from a place where they realized, you know, this is a circle of life, life is a trade-off, and then they thought, well, we can bargain with the forces of life or nature or gods by, you know, mimicking that, and I think that's where sacrifice came from. And then like in the story of Abraham and Isaac, the understanding is that that's not, you know, the true sacrifice, and then Amos, the prophet, you know, even might have gone so far as that, you know, the most important thing we can do is to give of our lives and, and compassion. And so I think that there's, um, and, <laughs> so I think that there's, and so I think that the uh, meaning of the cross likewise has to evolve. And so for me, the idea of the crucifixion is very much connected into a Buddhist concept. And the Buddhist concept is that of the bodhisattva. And even the idea of the bodhisattva, you can see it evolve throughout the history of the Buddhist tradition. But the bodhisattva is, an, bodhi means enlightened and sattva means being. So it's basically an enlightened being who is giving their life to help others be free from suffering and help others experience oneness. And so for me, uh, Jesus is, Christ is most definitely a bodhisattva. And that I would go so far as to say that one of the things that I hope that my sangha evolves into is a place where Christ can truly be uh, lifted up as a bodhisattva and that, you know, to really make our tradition be fully in sconced and rooted in the Western way 
in that it, it'll, it'll be that recognition. And so I, I do do that. I do recognize Christ as a Bodhisattva. But that's the meaning of the cross for me. The meaning of the cross for me is not the idea of some angry deity that needed a ransom uh, or some bloody sacrifice. Uh, I actually think within the words of the epistles of Paul, there's a closer idea, and that was where he says that, you know, he was a servant who even though coming in the form of God, which you could ter- inter- interpret as just like Adam was made in the image of God, this, this Jesus is made in the image of God. But even being found in the, in the form of God, he empties himself to be a servant, a servant even unto death. For me, man, that's where it sort of lays it all out, that that's, that's the meaning of the cross. It's the idea of someone emptying themselves of the, the, the dictates of the ego and letting the true self manifest. And that true self manifests as a bodhisattva, and a bodhisattva is a servant who will serve even unto death. And there are plenty of Buddhist stories that illustrate this. So that's what the meaning of the cross is for me. So I love that symbol, actually. My mom, uh, when I go to visit my mom, um, she, there's a wooden cross, a little very plain, simple wooden cross outside the, the bedroom that we sleep in. And for me, that's a symbol of, of, the, of the love and compassion and wisdom that flows forth from the true nature of the universe. And so that's how I see that. And finally, what I want to say is talk about the resurrection. <laughs> and I think that the resurrection for me, and this is, so some of the things I'm going to share with you now is, you know, it's not just coming from me. But, you know, the idea of resurrection can be sort of also understood as rebirth. In fact, I would go so far to say is that when you really dig deep into the Koine Greek of the Gospels, or you dig into the Greek that the epistles of Paul and so forth are written by, you really get the idea from Paul that Jesus is the second Adam. You know, the first Adam, you know, it, the first Adam is the Adam of the ego self, which is born here and then, you know, gets old and sort of falls apart following the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's the first Adam. The second Adam also is born of a woman, uh, in the image of God, but th- this this is the second Adam, and this second Adam, uh, his death, his his rebirth, is sort of this idea of like, well, in 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 one form you could say it's like the, uh, you know, the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly, that the caterpillar is the ego self, and the butterfly is the resurrected self. Um, our image would be the dragonfly, right? Who's like this water nymph, you know, and then becomes this majestic creature that flies above the water, is that are able to transcend that world. And I really think that that was the image that Paul had for Christ. And I don't think, you know, some people get so wrapped up in ideas about was it a physical resurrection? Was it a spiritual resurrection? Uh, I think Paul's pretty clear that his understanding of Jesus was is that Jesus was you know, the new, the new Adam, and that this rebirth, this resurrection was something, a spiritual body that was totally different uh, from the human body, and at the same time was a transmogrification of the human body. And I think that that imagery, all of it, 
for me is is the the lesson there is that that's the life of the true self incarnating and manifesting and transmogrifying the ego self that the ego self is not something to disdain it's not something we can escape but rather the ego self when it awakens to the true self the ego self becomes transmogrified it becomes the expression of the true self in this time and space with this name with this birthplace and so for me that's the meaning of the christ that the, that the christ is an example of that just as shakyamuni was an example of this but i do think that the unique thing about the jesus story is the the emphasis that jesus helps i think christ more than anything remember i talked about the prophets and how that i said you know the big lesson here for me is that not the old way where it's like god changes like some big human writ large like some greek you know zeus or or or, or roman deity um, or jupiter it, it's it's the idea that the eternal is the eternal these are always so and it's the human it's the ego self that can be awakened to greater and greater and higher levels of consciousness or deeper levels of consciousness wherever you where you like to talk about it and so it's not that God changes, it's that we change. It's that our understanding changes as we become more awake, as we develop those eyes, we awaken to those eyes that see the kingdom of heaven. And so for me, the idea is that the ego self is the expression when awakened of the true self, and that it'll always be about resurrection. It's not about, you know, to cutting off or trying to kill the ego. It's about the rebirth of the ego as centered and, and breathing and living out of the heart of the true self. And I think that the, the story of Jesus is unique in the sense that it teaches us in looking at that human way at the eternal that the ultimate, ultimate message, and I would say, you know, from the Christian point of view, the final message is that God is grace. We can talk about God as love. We can talk about God as oneness. We can talk about God as where there's no room for prejudice in this view of oneness. And we can talk about God as practice what you preach. But for me, ultimately, God is grace. And I think that is the ultimate message of the Bodhisattva Jesus, is that God is grace. And what is grace? Grace is an acceptance and a love that loves and accepts when it is unacceptable. That when you are unacceptable, it accepts. It accepts the unacceptable. And grace, I believe, is also the main message of the Dharma. That it is not about keeping rules it is not about some ego trip it's it's about awakening to the oneness of all life seeing the kingdom of heaven and everything and living graciously treating yourself with grace treating others with grace and when you start to accept this idea of God is grace, is that being the ultimate message, 
you become less judgmental. You become more loving and compassionate. And you're no longer so ready to hold things against people. And the walls of your prejudice begin to fall because there is no other. There is just oneness. And I just think that's an incredibly beautiful message. And so for me, that's what I get from the story of Christ. So that's it. Now, I know I can say there's a lot you could talk about, and I would love to explore these you know, ideas and concepts in more detail at some other time, and I might do that. But I really uh, hope that this was useful to you. This is kind of my little Christmas gift. Um, to the Sangha and to the world. So I wish you a very happy holiday and a Merry Christmas. And thank you. <laughs>